Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show, our buddy, Pete Enns. Hey, Pete. How you doing today? Welcome back. What do you mean, welcome back to the show? Where were we? You, you've been... No, you are welcome Oh, you're welcoming me? The, I thought you were welcoming your yeah. audience back. No, the audience is, I think has they, never left. They listen all week. Just They're there, case. like... <laughs> on repeat, I had a friend of mine from uh, uh, tell me before service on Sunday that uh, one of his friends, a, a former parishioner, was listening to either my sermon podcast or this podcast during an ultra marathon, like ran like 60 miles or something. And so he literally hasn't stopped listening. He's probably running right now, listening on loop. Okay. So welcome back, our old friend Pete Enns. Pete, we're good enough friends where I can do an ad roll, right? Yeah, good we. I'm sure we are. <laughs> Pete, remember that time we did something together in Malibu, California? You know what that event was? Yeah. Do you remember the name of that university? Uh, Pepperdine. Yeah, exactly. And you know what they're doing again? The, the same Pepperdine thing? Bible Lectures. Harvard, yeah. This year, April 30th through May 3rd. Wow. In beautiful. Wasn't it beautiful? It was beautiful. Beautiful. Place. It really was. Yes. Are you going And back? I'm going back. I'm doing a couple sessions there. And there are plenty of other good speakers. There's a pre-conference by our friend Don McLaughlin and Jerry Taylor entitled No Longer Strangers, Practical Steps for Race Relations, guest speaker from the Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. Have you ever been to the Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, Pete? But you probably then don't know the senior rabbi, which is Rabbi David Wolp. He will be there. And plenty of other friends of the show. Unfortunately, Pete, you're not going to be there this year. When is it? But you had a good... April 30th? It is... April 30th. Let's get that date again, uh, Luke. What they, what's the it's, date again? It, you know what? If you want to find more information, there's a link in the show notes that you can get all Why the information. you give it to them, Luke? I'm going to give them <laughs> information to go to the Harvard Bible Lectures. Or Pepper I can't Bible go Lectures. anywhere at the end of April anyway. I've got Why not? Because I'm going to be busy. What is, what's going on? I don't know. I'll find something to do. Okay. But you, like, you were indoctrinated into the Churches of Christ uh, for a few days. Did you feel like your chances of getting into heaven increased? Um... No. Actually, yeah. I felt I was in heaven in Malibu. How does that sound? Yeah. Uh, where, where do you go? Do you, feel, do you feel like you need to get the resume cleaned up and uh, send it out to old Pepperdine after the winter in uh, uh, southeast Pennsylvania? Well, this has not been a horrible winter. It's been a bit cold, but we haven't had much snow. And that's all. I, it can be cold. I do not want snow on the ground. And you, when, it, when I, it's there, I, I don't want it to be more than two and a half to three inches. And I don't I want it to melt by the next day. That's fine. Okay. Like when it's eight inches for two months, it's like, I'm just going to... No, thank you. I don't need that. No, yeah. I it's, don't, it's, I, today, it's like 60. That's and nice. No, it's like spring training weather, you know? And you're excited about spring training, aren't you? So it's about time. Another week and a half or so they're showing up. Is this the year the Yankees are going to I don't know. Win it it's, all? It's, you know, you ruin the season by making a prediction and just wringing your hands over it all season. You just got to enjoy the game. Stay in the moment, man. Be zen about it. You know what I appreciate about your book is that you come out and say, the, the, the new book is entitled How the Bible Actually Works. Uh, in it, you just finally admit to the world you're an Enneagram 6. And anyone who's ever texted with you during the baseball game has known that for a very long period of time. <laughs> and then I figured and, it out. And you figured it out, yeah. And so I appreciate you finally disclosing that to the world. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, it was, it was a good insight to know that I'm driven by fear and negativity yeah. and... <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> I, don't I have to learn more about that stuff I'm not a big Enneagram knowledgeable person but I know a lot of mm-hmm. people who are and they sort of feed me things But Have you done any Enneagram podcasts? No, I haven't You haven't? No. 
Do you want to fix that? Like, I, I, we could, we could fix that. Really? I think that I think like, we should make that. Yeah, I would be on somebody else's podcast. Yeah, not mine. I'm not going to interview podcast here. They would interview me like how messed up I am. Is that how that works? Or I, I kind of would like to hear if someone diagnose. If they pay me, I'll do it. I don't. <laughs> I think this might be more counseling. So maybe you would think about <laughs> giving them some sort of financial incentive for their time with you. Okay. Okay. That'd be fun. Actually, I haven't even thought about that, but I've. You okay. Know. I got an idea. Okay. I got an idea. I'll work on this. Right. Side note. We'll come back to that. Um, okay. When you were out in Malibu, yes. you got to hang out with the Churches of Christ. And one of the things about the Churches of Christ is we have a hermeneutic. Do you know what the word hermeneutic is? Have you yeah. learned that one? Did they teach you that at Harvard? Oh, even before. Even before. Okay. What was what, what seminary did you go to? Can What is it called? Huh. Where'd you, where'd you get your master's degree? Uh, at Westminster Seminary. In- Westminster, yeah. Yeah, we don't talk about that one anymore, do we? I, I talk about it all the time. It's not a big deal. I had some good moments there. I did. You know, just, good, good. Yeah, it's, not, okay. it's not heaven on earth, that's all. It's not, have, it's not Malibu. It's, it's not the Malibu. Pepperdine Bible. No, it's not. Okay, so you learned the word hermeneutic. Well, in the Church of Christ, we have a hermeneutic. Yeah. And I don't know if you've learned this one, but this is the correct one. When it comes to the Bible, there are three things that you look for wow. to tell you what to do. Trinity. Okay. You ready? What are the three get, get a pen and paper out for this yeah. one. Okay. It is okay. command, example, necessary inference. And so uh, if the necessary inference clause, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a... That's very yes. Calvinistic, too, by the way. It, it, it's, How it's, so? Because, um, you know, you, Scripture's authoritative in all that it teaches, are also in what can be, um, uh, like, um, what's the right word, not uh, detected or, or inferred from good and necessary inference, or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, of course, that's, what does that even mean? You know, like I can, I can, I can conclude on the basis of good and necessary inference that there were multiple gods in the heavens, because it talks about it. It doesn't command it. It's not an example to us, but I can mm-hmm. infer because it it's assumed. I can also assume mm. the earth is flat. So I'm not sure what a good and necessary inference is. Other well, than, let me give you an example. Other than a way to keep your doctrine in the Bible somehow. How's that for Well, I think in keep your doctrine in the Bible. No, what it really does is teaches you that having a kitchen in a church building is a sin. Because as Paul says, go to your homes to eat, which means a church building can't have a kitchen. But what it can do is have on its property a separate building that is detached and that can have a kitchen in it. Well, as some people have quipped, they said, that inference is neither good nor necessary. <laughs> <laughs> it's just making stuff up at this point. So. Yeah, that, so we, we did our fair share of making things up. But um, the reason is, we, we didn't have your book. Yes. We didn't have the book, How the Bible Actually Works, because you give us a better filter for reading the Bible. Because that's the command example necessary inference is probably the rule book mentality. Sound rule book-ish to you? It, it does, um, and I get it. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's difficult to actually. Uh, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, and I'm not kidding. But I, I, I think it's hard to walk away with that if you spend time reading the Bible without assuming it's going to be command or example or inference. Yeah. So yeah. if you just leave it alone for a minute and not come at it with the predisposed idea, you start seeing things like. There are other words that characterize this Bible even better than those words, you know. Yeah, and yeah. That, and, and where does that take you? 
Yeah. And, and I think that's what my tradition has uh, adapted, which we'll get back to that word later because you can talk about it in the book, uh, adapted to a better way of reading the Bible and getting to understand um, what is in this sacred text of ours. And um, yeah, okay. So you move from rule book to wisdom. And so you write a book about, does, does that make you, if you wrote a book about wisdom, a wise man? Um, like a magi, dare I say. No, I think, I think it may give me some wisdom. Mm-hmm. I think we all have some wisdom, right? And mm-hmm. maybe I'm just trying to find a way to transfer something that I've learned that people might like or might mm-hmm. help or they might need, even need to hear some people in certain places in their lives. But I don't think that mm-hmm. makes me... I mean, wise man is sort of a lofty title, but, but you're an expert on wisdom now, since you wrote a book about wisdom. Oh, that's, so I've, yeah, no, no that that's, that's not how it works. Okay, I, like, the more I don't you know, learn, like the I, more you realize you don't know. Okay, all right, you have to play it humble. Actually, play it humble for that's now. Wisdom, right there. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is wisdom. Okay, uh, so there was an abs- uh, uh, astute observation by someone, a uh, friend of mine named Emily, friend of the show, who is reading a copy of your book. I think she's on like your uh, oh the launch pr- uh, launch team. Yeah, she's a launch team. Awesome. Teamer. I am a, Do you have a name for your launch teamers? Um, Pete's pals. Pete's pals. Pete's pals. She's one of Pete. She's one of Pete's pals, <laughs> and she, Pete's pal Emily, noticed that uh, in the past you've done a lot of work of like critiquing in sin of certainty, and um, uh, what? Okay, what is the title? The Bible tells me. so. The Bible tells me so. There it is. There it is. Um, it's it's more like deconstruction in some ways. And this one seems to be more of like building, like this is exactly how you use it. And there's less deconstruction and more like, all right, this is what you do with it now. Yeah. Do you sense the difference? Oh yeah. I mean, that was very intentional. I, um, in the first chapter, I, I explained that briefly. I don't really go into a lot of detail, but saying, listen, the other two books were more aimed at things that I think are bad ideas that can derail people. So yeah. don't do that. And I would give like a glimmer of like, like, like in the sin of certainty, the glimmer is trust God anyway, you know, or and the Bible yeah, yeah. tells me so, the Bible is much more than a rule book or something. But this is, yeah. I'm trying to actually say, by paying attention to the contours of the Bible itself, I'm trying to get at, well, how does it work? And mm-hmm. if we just sort of let it be, how does it work? And like, I think it works more as a book of wisdom than a book of transferring information to us to memorize or just commands to listen to or things like that. So, so yeah, yeah it's very intentionally constructed, but also with a hint of deconstruction because you can't, yeah. like th- those two things work together. It's really a matter of what you emphasize. Is there, is there something uh, that you see like uh, connecting the books together or is this something that, uh, what made you make kind of the shift from more deconstruction to more reconstruction? Uh, two things. One is just my own, personal conviction that it's really easy to be negative. And mm-hmm. also, the second thing is everybody else's conviction about me that, Pete, you seem to really like being negative. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you're right, because the thing is, and, and my excuse is this, and, and I'm not kidding, my, you know, my whole Christian training before going to graduate school was in, in a world that that's what you do. Yeah. You know that you're right. Your job is simply to deconstruct what everybody else says and show how wrong they are. And yeah. it's hard to shake that habit. And now, of course, I was turning the tables on that very point of view in those other two books. But mm-hmm. it's still like, 
here's the thing. I think to construct well, you have to do some deconstruction first. Of course. And that's yeah. really what it comes down to. And I felt like, you know, what do I really think at the end of the day? It's, it, it is so easy to, show, to say what you don't think, what you, what you think mm-hmm. isn't right. And how does it actually work? Because that's actually more risky because it's easier to take that apart. Because somebody else can be deconstructive with me now, right? So you're sort yeah. of exposing yourself. But that's, too, that's the way it is. It's fine. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, uh, listen to the next episode of the podcast, and that's exactly what I'll do. I'll deconstruct everything that Pete said incorrectly in this one. <laughs> so just stay tuned for that. Okay, uh, here's a line from the book. The Bible holds out for us an invitation to join an ancient, well-traveled, and sacred quest to know God, the world we live in, and our place in it. That's a good sentence, Pete. That, right that was good. good. Yeah, that you did. Yeah. Okay. yeah, that was really good. Page 10. Page 10 Uh-oh. of the book. That was good. That was yeah. pretty early in the book. Good. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the, as far I as I got. I got to the point, like my other books. Okay. Yeah, you got to the point by page 10. Good job. Okay, so uh, we're moving rule book, moving away from that. We're, we're now seeing this as an invitation to join this ancient, well-traveled, sacred quest to know God, the world we live in, and our place in it. And, and wisdom is kind of the invitation here. So let's start by defining what wisdom is. Well, I, I think wisdom is, is learning to do that. Wisdom is mm-hmm. gaining the knowledge and understanding and intuition through experience and through living to, I guess I put it this way, navigate God's world well. Yeah. And that's something that is, is learned. W- wisdom is not read about, right? It, it, it is really experienced. And I think, you know, one of the things that sort of in the back of my mind always sort of annoyed me was how when the Bible simply becomes an object that you control and not something that you really learn from and not something where you seek God's presence, you know, immediate God's presence walking with you through this life of faith. It always becomes a matter of exegesis, you know, getting the Bible right. Yeah. But, you know, I, th- I think this whole Christianity thing is, is deeper than just managing a book well. Mm-hmm. It's managing life well. And the book, when you stop looking at as, as a, a rule book or a field guide to faith or whatever you want to call it, you, you can see this is happening within the pages of the Bible itself, and it's mm-hmm. it's even laid out, so to speak. I mean, I don't know what God is up to, but it, it's sort of, I, mean, I use the word, it seems designed to get us to accept the sacred responsibility of walking this path of wisdom rather than using it as sort of an index to find the verse, you know, that's going to mm-hmm. get us out of something. You said that uh, this is happening within the Bible itself. Yes. Kind of flesh that out a little bit. What, in what ways is this happening within the Bible? Well, I think the Bible, we, we see things like, you know, diversity among biblical writers. And I think what happens is you have later writers going back and rethinking earlier traditions because their experiences demand another way of thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, one very brief example that I use in the book is Ezekiel, who... You know, he's a prophet during the exile, and people are complaining to him. Uh, you know, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the children are being punished for something the parents did. And mm-hmm. the punishment is the exile. And God says to uh, you know, Ezekiel to tell the people that, you know, you're right. You got a good point. Um, so from now on, here's what's going to be. The, the son is not going to suffer for the parents' sins. But neither is the son going to get a free ride because dad's awesome. Everyone is judged on their own merits. In other words, there are no intergenerational consequences for someone's mm-hmm. actions. But, you know, one example in the Second Commandment, 
you know, if you, uh, that's one about making idols, if you make idols and disobey God, you'd be punished to the third and fourth generation. And if you obey, then God will bless you and stay with you to the thousandth generation, which sounds like intergenerational consequences of someone's yep. actions. But yep. the, the crisis of exile, see, the experience of exile, people are saying, this isn't fair. <laughs> I didn't do anything. Why is God punishing me? It's, it's This intergenerational thing doesn't seem right. And so there's a movement there. And what really interests me is that both Exodus and Ezekiel are the word of God to a mediator to the people. And it's not the same. It changes. It's different. And I think because the circumstances demand it. I don't think, I mean, some would disagree and that's fine, but I don't think it's God changing his mind. I think it's humanity perceiving differently, maybe more wisely, what God is up to and and what it means to live in this relationship with this God. Yeah. It seems that fundamentalists and, ath- and many atheists have the same expectation for what the Bible is. If there are contradictions, then that discredits it or it proves it. And fundamentalists can't let there be any contradictions. And atheists say if there's any contradiction, that means it's completely done. And both of them have that same mentality and usually get stuck. Because even in the book, you mentioned more than just this. There's obviously proverbs that contradict each other. Uh, you have slave laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy that seem to contradict each other. Uh, obviously, the, the Samuel and the Chronicles account of David's life, a little bit different mm-hmm. from each other. Uh, and so instead of having that sort of... Um, small picture of the Bible, you're picturing the idea of like the Bible can adapt and that, that the, the understanding of who God is adapts. Here's a quote from the, from, uh, from the book. Uh, Judaism was faithful to its traditions by adapting that tradition so that it could survive. Not in a willy-nilly, let's throw out caution to the wind sort of way, but like Judaism, as you're saying, is adapting its traditions when we see that as part of what faithful people who are trying to follow God can do, how does it change our engagement, not just with, with God, but also with, with the world? Yeah, I think we won't be looking for a quick answer in a text. I think the text is modeling that engagement and how you perceive the world and how you perceive the God differently, God differently based on those experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think for that to work in a Christian sense, you have to sort of think of maybe God is with you. (laughs) Maybe God is a part of this creation, a part of this world. And God is not out there somewhere and, you know, isn't here. But you do have this Bible to figure me out. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not really the Bible's purpose. Maybe God is closer than we think. And maybe some of the contemplatives are right that God is in us. And our problem is we don't we're not aware (laughs) You know, mm-hmm. that God's not far from it. I actually believe that. I, I believe that about God. I can't find that in the Bible necessarily, but I do believe it because my experiences and the experiences of other people sort of lends itself to that conclusion, right? But, but yeah. I, I think what we learn is that this really is about experience, which I know maybe some of your listeners will say, my pastors and teachers always told me never to trust your experience, only to trust the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, this is all about experience, if we're not experiencing these things. And if mm-hmm. we're not finding ways to think about God that that don't run roughshod over common experience. Yeah. You know, what what is all this about, right? And and that's yeah. that's hard because it's it's subjective. Pal, man, I can news for you, your biblical interpretation is subjective too. Yeah. What, no. how do you how do you escape subjectivity? 
Yeah, obviously experience has been a key part, even in the New Testament, the, the Acts 15, the, the council, where they say, okay, the way that uh, we're going to make Gentiles act is no longer the same way it used to be. And we're going to have a major change because Peter has this experience and then the Holy Spirit confirms it. And so the community discerns, okay, this experience, this confirmation of the Holy Spirit is the right thing. So we're going we're gonna to change. We're going to adapt. Yeah, the very fact that they had a council. Right. And then the mm-hmm. letter, whatever the letter says, something like it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, yeah. you know, it's like, which isn't like, yeah, we talked to the Holy Spirit. It's more like it seems like this is what God is doing. That's, we're, we're concluding that this seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's a beautiful picture of the very thing that I'm talking about, that this is they're not waiting for someone to write a book to tell them what the right thing to do is here. They're experiencing it and they're saying. God's doing something that we weren't really ready for. And it yeah. seems very, like, not Jewish in some respects. True, but, true. Yeah, there you have it, you know, and so what do you do with this stuff? Well, you, you roll with it, and maybe God is out ahead of us instead of always behind us saying, come on back to this way of doing things. Maybe God is bigger than all that. And I think that's part of what the trajectory of the Bible does by changing the way that it does. See, those contradictions aren't contradictions in a classic sense. There are different people perceiving God differently at different times and places for different reasons. Hmm. And they're both in there. Yeah. But I, I like that. That's good. Uh, so if we're going to be people who, who are willing to follow, follow God where, where God is taking us, we don't want to end up, like you said, the willy-nilly, let's throw caution out the wind sort of way. We don't want to do that. Um, so we, we've got to trust wisdom. And here's a quote that you have about wisdom in the book, which, tell me which page this is Did on. Read it? Tell me what page this quote is on. If if you really wrote the book, I want you to know, okay? Wisdom is about being trained and ready for the little and hidden things. Page number now. Give me a second. You're, you're, no, this is, that's, this is bad radio. Why is that? I'm, I have to you're, think. I'm, have you're to you're looking through Word document. No, and I'm you're not. Try, you just type think, those words in. I have to think of. Page 44. Um, page 44. No, I, no, no, I have to. Yeah, page 44. Yeah, exactly. That was page 44. Yeah, I had, exactly. I, had a, I was reading the entire book in my head. <laughs> and it took me that long to get to 44. That's good. Okay, so uh, nilly-willy, like, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to change because I'm, I, I want to. The other option is that wisdom somehow informs us of this. And it's being trained and ready for the little and hidden things. Like, you can't just say, I'm going to be wise. But it, it's going to have, like, this formative process so that you can discern the Spirit's leading, God's involvement, and where to go in the future. How does that happen? I think that happens only several things. I mean, th- these aren't magic words, but in community. It's not in isolation. Um, I think it's through failing, and I, I think it's it's really through humility to realize that we all have this steep learning curve, and we're picking things up as we go along, and and we're not going to be wise about everything. You know, you, you may have insights about certain kinds. I mean, people have suffered in a particular way. Let's say depression or maybe the loss of a child or something. You know, mm-hmm. just really horrible, heavy things. Mm. They will they will have something to add to conversations at some point that other people will never conceive of. And that's the, there's a wisdom in that that mm. is born from experience. Right? And, but that takes time. It can sometimes take suffering. And it takes a humility to be able to let your own narrative be rewritten, in a sense. You know, mm-hmm. that you're not stuck with, I've always believed this and I'm going to stick with it. That's not wisdom. That's foolishness, I think. Mm-hmm. 
So that, it, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, community is important because you're listening to people who have gone through things mm -hmm. and have experienced God in certain ways. And it's good to hear their stories and what they have to say when you're 20, you know, and these people are 58. That's why you have to have old people in the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, Do you have old I, people in the church? Or are you one of these coffee bar type <laughs> hipster gene kind of... Uh, first of all, the tightness of my jeans is none of your business, okay? <laughs> this is 2019. Who am I to let you judge me? No one. I'm not going to let that happen. Second of all, my church has been around for 40 years, um, and there, there are uh, people of all gamuts of age. Um, yeah, that was a nice... I feel, like, I feel like I answered that question pretty well. Just checking to see if I can judge you or not. <clears throat> no, no. I, I preach to eight decades of people every Sunday, and that in itself is quite a challenge. Yeah, Side note. that's all. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, but that's why I'm a professional. Uh, but I'm not a professional enough to think that I include words like transposing. Transposing. You know what I do? I try to make the Bible for, for normal people. And so I make it accessible even for normal. So I don't use words like transposing the past as an act of wisdom. Like th those kind of sentences don't roll off my tongue. So if, if you were to speak to someone like me who does translate the Bible for normal people, what would that sentence actually mean? Yeah, most people do know what that word means. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, what, what I mean is, you know, like transposing music from one key to another. You know, there's a, there's a consistency between... I'm Church of Christ. We're a cappella. Come on. We don't well, transpose you do music. Key, don't you? <laughs> but, you know, I'm kidding. Actually, I love the way you guys sing, but anyway. Um, but, you yeah. know, it's, it's keeping the same... The music is the same, but you've transposed it into maybe another key, or the tempo is different. But in other words, there's continuity and discontinuity between those two things. And yep. I think you know a lot of what we're doing is we're really transposing things we read in the Bible to a setting that the Bible simply doesn't speak to directly. It has to speak to it indirectly. So we have to do some work to bridge those horizons, as, as people have called it, and, you know, the, that bridging of horizons, another word for that is really theology. It's, it's yeah. really what we do anyway. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and the thing is, what I like is that the Bible is already doing that. See, within the Bible itself, that's already happening, either within the Old Testament or between the Old and New Testament. You already have this transposing going on because things don't just stay the same. And people think differently. And and how many of our thoughts about God have changed because of experiences we've had? I would venture to say every human being who's ever lived, who has any sort of a faith commitment, will realize that I used to believe this thing, but then something happened. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you could listen to or read some Jonathan Haidt on how we make decisions, how um, often we think that it's all about logic and reason, but often it's emotion and passions that are, that are driving the elephant, to stay with Haidt's metaphor. One of the things that would make someone worry about what you're describing is, okay, so we're transposing, we're, we're using wisdom to apply to where we're going, and we're seeing God in front of us, and so all of a sudden, I care about X issue 
And this issue to me is what I think God cares about right now. And all of a sudden, I'm going to say, this is what God is doing now. And so it's front and center of all I care about. And therefore, I don't realize it, but I'm being caught up in the powers and principalities of this age. And all of a sudden, these causes that I think are front and center are really just a political machine that is trying to reduce me to simply being a voter who's going to see their side of partisan politics as God's big issue right now. And so I'm going to be sucked up into this. There's no subtext to this question, is there? Okay, good. No. Okay, so, and so as I was reading on page 158 earlier in my life, um, here's a quote that I will read to you. Do you remember what page this is? I actually just told you. Never mind, I can't do that again. Okay, uh, sure we might see hints in the biblical story where something like God sides with refugees can find a hook. And for some issues, that hook is bigger than others. The justice and fairness hooks are huge, for example. But the biblical hook is brought in after the fact. The actual feeling of compassion for refugees doesn't begin by reading the Bible. Rather, the Bible comes into the picture afterwards as a way of grounding that compassion in our Christian faith, our faith tradition. Mm -hmm. Refugees aside, that propensity of us just to go, okay, I want to adapt, say this is a big issue right now, and then whatever like political issue is front and center, I'm going to read that into the text. Right. It seems like that's not a good use of wisdom. How do we not let those things become the overriding message instead of, like, I don't know, the good news of Jesus? Right. I mean, I think it's hard to answer that question, like, here are the three things you can do, because I think people are motivated by different things. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people just lack humility and they want to know everything and so the answer there is examine yourself a bit where is this coming from others i think are just afraid of losing control of reality and so they they fight right and mm-hmm. so they they want to hook their faith in god in something very concrete whether it's a political movement or a social movement or something and this this is the way to make sense of it all for them And I think that would be a different kind of conversation altogether. I think there are some good things to sink your teeth into. Yeah. Maybe not the same things all the time, but I think, you know, when people, okay, when people in the 60s are marching because of racism in America, and they're saying, this is what God wants me to do, I'm not going to argue with them. (laughs) You know, in, in part because it's a biblical theme, but also in part because it's good for humanity. And those two things aren't necessarily against each other. But... If someone says, you, if we don't have a person from a certain political party making to the White House, the country's going to fall apart. So my whole passion is getting this. I want to ask, you know, where's that idea coming from? Where's the premise even coming from? And see, that's a wisdom question at that point. And to do that, I mean, I wish people did that themselves. I wish I did that myself <laughs> when I get caught up in stuff, right? But the wisdom, the ability to look at yourself in a, in a dispassionate sort of way and say, What's going on inside of me right now to really, really, really know yourself? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lost art, and that's as valuable as anything. And I think that is one of the beginning points of wisdom. Not, maybe not knowing yourself, but understanding that you need to, right? Yeah. And, and to know God and to know yourself are two sides of the same coin. Many people have said that, and I think it's absolutely true. You can't really know God without knowing yourself. You can't really know yourself without knowing God. And those two things work in tandem. It's not first this, then the other. It's those things are constantly looping around, looping around, looping around. That's yeah. another way of talking about the life of wisdom, by the way, I think. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. Uh, I, I love Merton's take on that is that uh, uh, to be a saint is to be your truest self. Hmm. And 
the only way to be a saint, obviously, is to know God. And that's how you know who you truly are. I, I think there's a self-evaluation process, which you described, which I think is just foundational to understand that we are all a mixed bag and there are a bunch of things that are influencing us. And while the sort of rule book mentality of the Bible says X, Y, and Z, therefore I'm going to do it, seems to prevent us from letting those sort of subterranean motivations reign supreme, I think that's idealistic. Like those things are still guiding us even if we think that we're using the rule book mentality. Like to say that, oh, I booked chapter and verse, therefore that solves it. No, it doesn't. It just but means you're naive. Of, and part of the rule book mentality, what you mentioned before, is a very like post-enlightenment, modern way of thinking about how humans think. Like it's always rational, analytical. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's actually not. There, there are experiences and emotions that drive us and our minds usually come along for the ride and they help us understand why they construct a narrative for us yep and i think that's very very natural and you know maybe the bible works sort of that way too you know you have people experiencing things and they tell the story of israel or they tell the story of david or something in a way that makes sense with what they're sensing or intuiting but someone else comes along later and says well you know maybe it's bigger than that Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something more going on here. And maybe that whole process is not about necessarily arriving at all the answers, but it's just the gaining of wisdom along the way. Yep. And maybe that's, I, I, maybe, I keep saying maybe, I, I think that's good enough, at least I hope so, because I'm not sure what else we can really sink our teeth into. Well, are you saying I can't, you know, um, have a conviction about Jesus? I'm not talking about having convictions. I'm talking about, like, mistaking those convictions for something that's unalterable and can never change. Even yeah. people, I believe in Jesus. Well, what we mean that will change over time. It yeah. matures it changes, and it changes because of experiences. I don't, I don't mean it the same way today that I might have meant it when I was 15. But as you continue, you would still say you believe. I still think I believe, but belief to me has changed. It means so much more now than it did. And I hope that in 20 years my belief would be more substantial than it is right now. And I, I think that's a, a, a hope and a faith that, that God continues to work in your life. Yeah. Okay. Let's change subjects here. Let's talk about midrash. Now, 20 years ago, if you would have said a midrash to me, I would assume that that was something else, that you need to like get some medication There's for. There's an ointment for that, I think. Yeah. That's not, but there's no <laughs> Only ointment. by prescription, though. Only by prescription. <laughs> midrash. Okay. What about? Uh, okay. First of all, give me your give me your uh, smart person definition for midrash. Well, midrash actually means two things. One of which we're not going to deal with. Um, I'll just mention it. Midrash is like a body of Jewish literature that's like commentaries on biblical books or something like that. Mm-hmm. Midrash, the way I, I use it a lot, is as a way of interpreting texts. It's 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 a hermeneutic. It's an approach to interpretation. And Midrash is creatively engaging biblical texts to bring them into your own moment and to make them meaningful and relevant to you. And that's a very, very old way of understanding what the Bible even does. That's even within the Bible itself. You know, Chronicles retelling of the story of the kings is Midrash because it's very creative and using these older texts, but not coming down to the same place on what those texts mean. 
Yep. So, and this is something that people basically, it's an old Jewish technique, it's within the Bible, and I think everybody does it in some sense or another. We're very creative about these texts. My family, when they listen to me tell stories about my childhood in sermons or in a book, uh, they think I'm just lying, and I tell them, no, <laughs> this is called Midrash, and therefore I'm doing it God's way. Yeah. Uh, besides, obviously, the sermon stories and my own personal narrative that I include in writing, uh, what are other examples that we can look at a modern Midrash that's, like, that's doing it, what you think is in line with the Jewish tradition? Like for us today? Yeah, like, like give, give, give the people an example. Um, well, okay, for example, we, you mentioned refugees before, okay? Mm-hmm. I think to, to, to creatively use texts to sort of anchor a belief, that's really what these Midrashic things do. They, they anchor beliefs in a biblical text through inter- creative interpretation. But, um, I mean, people have talked about how the, the nativity and Jesus' birth is like, you know, the, uh, you, you should welcome refugees because Jesus wasn't, re- you know, uh, welcomed as one. The problem with that is that Jesus wasn't a refugee, and it's not like nobody <laughs> liked him. It's just that, you know, the area was really full because there was a major celebration, and they got there too late. So it's, it's nothing personal, Jesus, but, you know, there really wasn't room for you here at our house to stay with the animals, and you got to figure something else out. But the thing is that the creative use of that kind of story, I will look at that and say, I don't think that's remotely what the nativity story is about, but people will will find in this story, and I mean that not negatively, I mean it just as a matter of course, this is how people use scripture, they will find in that story some, some hook, some, some way of, of, of bringing their world and their experience into this ancient tradition. And there's yeah. really no other way to do it. I mean, you can debate about whether it's a good midrash or bad midrash and what that even means, but you can't avoid it for the simple fact that we don't live back then mm-hmm. or back there. We actually live, you know, millennia removed from some of these stories. And what does it mean to you? Well, it, it, that has to be transposed. I'm going to use that word again. It has to be brought into your world somehow. And that's, that's, that approach is usually called Midrash. Yeah. And, and what we see with the New Testament writers and their quotations of the Old Testament would not typically cause you to earn a good grade if you were in a biblical studies class in college and you're trying to do the same thing with the biblical text and say, this is exactly what that means because of this quote, because they're, they're creatively reappropriating those texts for what God is doing in their life at this time in, in the life of the community. And I, I think that the switch of, is this right or wrong to, is this a good read or is this a bad read? Yeah. It's, a, it, it's a different filter. It's like, is that a good read of that text or is that a bad read? Different than... No, that's not the, the one right one, which when I was in seminary, I felt like it was my responsibility to judge every sermon and go, that's not the right use of that text. Sadly, I've lost that license, but I every so often feel like I need to grab it. Why do you think uh, Midrash is so difficult in modern times? Why, why is it so hard for us to, to feel comfortable with it or want to engage in that way of reading? I mean, it's not difficult for everyone. It's, it's difficult for some who are approaching the Bible with, again, certain expectations of what it's supposed to do. That mm-hmm. this is God's propositional communication to you, and your job is simply to do what it says, or yep. to, to judge you know, what to do on the basis of what it says. 
And that's actually more of the problem than anything. But I think the reason why Midrash is difficult in that context is, is because Midrash doesn't just stick to, let's say, the original meaning of a text. Yeah. And it doesn't go with a principle you might get out of it. It's a much more dramatic and invested rereading of texts and bringing them into your present moment to, to, to draw this connection between these historical horizons of today in, you know, Alabama versus, you know, 2,500 years ago in Babylonian exile or 2,000 years ago when Jesus is walking the earth. You know, yet you, you have to think creatively and, I mean, everyone does that. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, you know, we say a creed in church every Sunday, usually the Apostles' Creed, but like the, the Nicene Creed, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, unmade, being of one substance with the Father. We think, well, that's just normal Christianity. No, actually, that's Midrashic. It's, it's, it's a fourth century Gentile attempt to bring this ancient Semitic faith hmm. and this, this Jesus who is Jewish into the world of Greco-Roman philosophy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not like the pure essence of anything. It's actually, it's an act of transposing the past into a different key because you actually want to stay connected to the past. See, this is the irony. You cannot stay connected to the past without also appropriating it creatively, midrashically transposing it. That's the irony. Traditions die without adaptation. And as soon as you adapt, you're doing something to the text that the authors might not have recognized. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think we're currently on number six for the amount of times you've used the word transposing, and okay. that's good. I'd like to well, see it. Because you don't know what it means, so I thought I'd just use it. You know, if you use the word ten times, it's yours. Mm. Okay. So now I'm going to use it for your benefit. Four more times. Okay, I'm going to give you one more question. If you can work f- transposing in four times, that'd be great. Uh, this morning when you woke up, you had a to-do list, and if you would check every box off, then you would feel like uh, you mattered and that the universe was going the way it should. Yes. yes. Uh, have, how, uh, how many boxes have you checked off so far? Today? Mm-hmm. Oh, probably eight or nine boxes. Mm-hmm. I put stupid things in there just to give me, give me something to check off, like mm-hmm. stand up. Really? All right. are, you, are you a whiteboard to-do list guy, or are you like a piece of paper? Um, I, two things. Well, actually... If you I put it on your phone, I don't, I don't want to be your friend anymore. No, I use whiteboards more okay. for creative stuff and occasionally for to-do lists, but I use on my MacBook, the uh, Rinders app. Mm. So I have a calendar for, for when I have like <clears throat> things to do on certain days, but then each morning I have a to-do list and I just put it there because it goes with me wherever I go. If it's a piece of paper, I'll lose it. If it's a yep. whiteboard, I can't carry a whiteboard with, with me. And sometimes I'm like, I'm someplace else and I say, what was I going to do tomorrow? And it, it's got to be there. And I have, I have to-do lists that go out for weeks and months in some cases. Hmm. Like, I have... Judges. I've hidden my whiteboard in my heart so that I might not sin against it, as Scripture tells me to do. Yeah. Uh, let, me show you this. let me show you this right here. Do you see that whiteboard right there? Yes. That's my next 10 sermons. Okay, with good for you. All my check marks right there. What do they mean? That means color-coded. Like, it, the document has started. Uh, this one from seven weeks out is uh, first level's done. Got it, the outline. Started to fill in the boxes. I'm one check mark away from that one on March 17th being complete. Wow, you're really anal. Well, some of us care about our job. We take our work seriously. Some of us don't trust the spirit. For- <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of a- Actually, uh, I don't know if you can see this, but... Um, see oh, that look, back at, 
there's a right board. That's I nice. can't show you that too much because I'm um, that's my creative space, and over here is sometimes my. That's more my. Can you, is there a whiteboard in that? Yeah, I see that. I see that. It's more of a. Um, that's more of like a to-do list kind of space. But so I, what we're, like I write standing up. I mean, I can't sit down, so I have to put things on whiteboards, and then I. Yeah. See this stand-up desk. Uh, this has been a really good podcasting right here. We're talking about what we're looking at. Uh, that hidden whiteboard. If you want to see this, we're going to start a Patreon account for newsworthy or noiseworthy. I'm glad. See, I don't want anybody to see that whiteboard because I'm working on a TED Talk that I have to give in a few days. No, I've recorded it, though. Like, I've recorded it while you moved over. And so I'm going to sell that on Patreon. Yeah, but you can't read my writing anyway. That's true, because you use words like transposing. I know. What is a TED Talk for? Um, It's actually, it's something called the Theo Ed Talk. It's in Atlanta. It's a church that does these things. A lot of people have gone and spoken there. But it's, they they model it very strictly on a TED Talk model. So. 20 minutes, no notes, and be very interesting and wonderful. Which is and, the most... And funny and change everybody's life. What's it's the like, hardest part okay. of that for you? Um, I don't like not having notes. Here's the thing. When I have notes, I never look at them. That's, I never look at my notes when I speak. But if you but don't have them, it's a... Yeah. I don't have them, it's a... Uh, but that's why, I mean, I just... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll make stuff up. They'll never know. <laughs> when is this coming up, by the way? <laughs> not before Sunday. Okay. Not before Sunday. You'll be good. Uh, Pete, this has been good. It's been great to have you back on the show. Yeah, I feel like we've accomplished a lot. Uh, the book, How the Bible Actually Works, it's out in February. It'll be out when this podcast... Is there a release date? What is it? The 19th of February. Okay, maybe we'll have this out sometime around then. Um, Pete, do you have any questions for me? I feel like I've, I've helped you a whole lot, though, in this, <laughs> this interview. You have. I appreciate it. I have no questions for you. Oh, Other than... Will you do me a favor and work on that word transpose? Use it in a sermon. Transpose. Then it's yours, man. I don't think I. I don't think I want to do that. Like that transpose. Like it's about time, man. It's about time, Luke. You use it. What What percentage of people in do you think actually know what that word means? One hundred percent. Do you think one hundred percent? Okay. All right. Well, have human beings understand what transpose means? Okay, listeners, would you please respond to that? How many of you? Know what the word transposing is. Uh, send that in, let us know, and we'll, um, we'll update the world's lexicon. Yes. Pete, good work. All right, Luke, thanks. Appreciate it. Keep checking those boxes on your sermon. I um, will. I will. So I'll feel good about myself. I want more red check. Is the red check the last one? Yeah, red means done. Red means stop, like a stop sign. Green oh. is the first one, like go. This is inspired by The Office, because I know you're a big Dwight Schrute fan. Because yeah. I remember that, remember the time when you completely <laughs> like fanboyed out for Rain Wilson. Oh, oh that yeah. was so goodness. Oh, that was so good. This, it, it, it comes from an episode where Michael Scott is with Dwight and teaching him like, his color-coded system for sales. Which is Everything was just stop, yeah. basically. <laughs> anyway, so green means get going and red means stop. There it is. That's how it works. But remember that time, though, where you, you, you ran up a flight of steps, you were breathing heavy? I'd never seen you like that. It was one of the highlights of my Pepperdine experience. I was like, I'm going to meet Dwight Schrute if it kills me. Yeah. I will do that. <laughs> I was going to have my picture with him and everything, and I gave him a copy of The Sin of Certainty, which he hasn't read. <laughs> you don't know that for certain. I don't know that. I don't know that. I know. For certain, because certainty is a sin. All right, we're really done now. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy right. with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.